Welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dider, and today I'm delighted to be interviewing one of my new bosses at the University of Queensland, Professor Elizabeth Eakin, who is the Head of School of Public Health. Well, thank you for joining me, Liz. Thanks, Emily. It's a pleasure to be here. So maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about what your role as Head of School entails. <laughs> oh, Emily, well, the, 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 the easier question <laughs> is probably what it doesn't in, entail, but um, really being responsible for everything that, that happens in the school across teaching and learning and all of the staffing and resourcing and quality teaching that's associated with that and, and then the same on, on the research side as well as strongly supporting and promoting academics and professional staff in the school and then of course engaging externally across the university and, and with a whole range of wider state and national and when we get a chance international stakeholders. <laughs> so I am interested to know that's a lot how you get your head across all those different things but maybe it would be easy if we walk through your career journey to how you got here and it might help us with some of that. Yeah happy so, to do that. <laughs> so you're a behavioural scientist and you focus on chronic diseases so how did you first get into sort of public health? Yeah um, surprisingly actually because my my PhD is in clinical psychology and you can probably hear from the accent that that's study and, and life that was lived um, in the United States before moving here but yeah so I, w I was studying I was doing my PhD in clinical psychology and and there was actually one really pivotal lecture that that I had I was already I guess interested in in physical activity research but more kind of individually focused I, I suppose I was working in respiratory rehab settings with with patients undergoing rehab from from COPD and we had this lecture come in and he's actually one of the most well-known physical activity researchers in in the world professor Jim Salas and so Jim if you're listening there's a there's a plug he, he gave this lecture talk, talking about well really introducing us as, as clinical psychologists to public health thinking to Rose and and shifting the the curve and but brought it home in in terms of I guess thinking about chronic disease and, and whether we could actually have an impact at the population level and said, you know, you as psychologists are meeting with and intervening with, you know, treating one person at a time. How is that ever going to solve this issue of cardiovascular disease or diabetes or, you know, the obesity, all these things that are really happening at epidemic proportions? How are you going to do that one person at a time? And it was just I guess it was the first time I'd ever been exposed to public health thinking and and it just made so much sense to me it just clicked and I went wow so I didn't jump out of my degree in clinical psychology in into public health but I suppose all of the work that I did subsequent to that was always thinking about scale how, how can we take whatever we're doing whatever intervention whatever chronic disease prevention or management program how can we take it if it's effective and and scale it up and and that's been the focus subsequently i guess of, of my research yeah. and how did you ever tell him that that was an important lecture um, for you I th yeah I, th I think i did because he, he was actually ended up being one of my phd advisors so yeah, I'm yeah. Sure he'd like to hear that yeah <laughs> And so your PhD was then focusing in a more population level? No, the, the PhD still stayed focused around COPD rehab. Okay. But then yeah. your research took a more public health focus yeah, over time. subsequent to that. Yeah. And then talk me through from there, you were doing more population type research. How did you come to Australia? Coming, coming to Australia was, was really 
just an, another fluke. And, and I have to say, you know, you, you look back on your career and when you're writing something like a fellowship application, you, you have to make it sound very linear and like a coherent narrative. But, you know, for most of us, these chances and, and opportunity are, are much more impactful in, in shaping direction. Sorry, go back to your question again. Where did, how did I come <laughs> how to did you come to Australia? So I was living in Colorado. I was working at a cancer research center, so you know, full-time research fellow at, at the center. My husband happened to be at a conference in Canada, and he met someone from QUT here in, in Brisbane who offered him a postdoc opportunity. Um, and he thought, oh, well, Australia's kind of interesting, wasn't really in, in, in our thinking, but sure, let's consider it. Well, it turned out that I knew the head of the School of Public Health at, at QUT at the time, that was um, Professor Brian Oldenburg. And so in, in a you know, series of conversations, um, my husband got the postdoc offer. They made me an offer in, in the School of Public Health, and um, actually it was a joint position, public health and um, human movement studies across both schools. Our children were very young and we thought, hey, let's go to Australia for what would be like a maybe an early career sabbatical kind of couple of years and 20 plus hey, years on. That wasn't short. <laughs> here I am. <laughs> I like, what I like about that is it really highlights the importance of networks. So you obviously already knew people in the field. Has that been important for your career? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Networks and probably more than that, which, which I think is something we'll probably touch on later, um, mentoring. And so I will, I will jump back to the career, but I'm just interested, how, how have you developed those networks? Is it just finding people with similar interests? Have you done it actively? I feel like I've done it accidentally. <laughs> it, it's a good question. I guess if, if I'm giving you the honest answer, that's always been a, a challenge. I've, I've never found that easy. I'm actually more of a shy, introverted person. And, and so extending myself to really like systematically and actively build a network, never been in my comfort zone. Even though, you know, in a role like, like this as, as head of school and, and previous roles, it's, it's sort of part and parcel. So I've, I've had to push through that, but it has been, and probably happens more, you know, at conferences, just meeting meeting people of like interest, doing similar research and, and striking up those conversations. Do you just go, that's where I struggle the most at conferences. Do you just go up and talk to people? I would now, certainly. Um, it, you know, at, at earlier points and more junior points in, in my career that was that was harder. But I, I, I suppose when you know, when you're able to get a podium presentation yourself and I don't mean like a keynote as a early career person, but, but you know, even to get up and present orally at a conference, often, you know, if your work is, is good, people are coming up to you afterwards and, yeah, yeah or, or, you know, joining professional societies, I guess, is, is another really important place for that to happen. So yeah, that's being, been my avenue because yeah. then I feel like I have a role. And, and, you know, often often there's a specific subgroup of a professional society that's, you know, very much tailored to the, the area that you're working in and you can then possibly take on a a leadership role within you know within that subgroup or, or working group and help to organize conferences just all, all of that kind of thing yeah. to just keep putting yourself out there and putting yourself out there i don't think you're alone i think lots of people don't <laughs> so you're in australia and then you've obviously worked here for a while and you know now you're head of school what happened in that sort of progression from qut to now yeah and again I suppose opportunity and, and doors, you know, opening. But um, I was at QUT for for four years and um, was just starting to have some grant success. So I got my first 
NHMRC back then was a project grant funded and was just on the cusp of, of getting an NHMRC research fellowship as well. An opportunity came up at what was then the Queensland Cancer Fund to be the director of their Behavioral Science Research Center, which was newly launched. So it was kind of inaugural director of a new yeah, behavioral science research center. So something, you know, very much in, in my area, you know, cancer and cancer prevention focused and behavioral science research. It was kind of my my dream job. So I, I applied and, and I got the role and I was there for a couple of years. And yeah, it was just a wonderful, you know, wonderful environment in, in which to undertake research. But I, I suppose the, I guess, it, you know, it was interesting. I, I think the the draw of, of the university environment really kind of pulled me, me back this way. The opportunity to work more closely with students, the opportunity to, to work more collaboratively with, with staff. I think in some ways, maybe it was a little bit too early in my career to, to take on that, that kind of role in a, in a not-for-profit. For and yeah, so I gravitated back to the university, um, here to our school. Professor Neville Owen was, was here at the time and he was head of the school's Cancer Prevention Research Center and again was another colleague of mine through networking in you know, professional societies through, and through our research. So Neville offered me a role here and I've been here in a variety of positions ever since. <laughs> uh, do you have any tips for applying for grants? You've been very successful, You've been very <laughs> modest. Oh my gosh, <laughs> tips in applying for grants. Boy, it's well, these are going to sound so obvious. I, I think it's absolutely a team effort. There's, um, you know, particularly as, as an earlier career person, it's not realistic to think that, that, you know, you can really get one funded, like, by yourself on, on lead. I mean, rarely that, you know, that happens, but grants are so competitive. Yeah, you, you have to um, attach your wagon to someone more senior and, and work your way up as you build your track record. It really is, I suppose, about finding that team and, and those more senior researchers who will nurture you and, and again, support your opportunity for, for growth, getting publications out, all, all, of, the, all of the standard track. But it, but it is, I suppose, it is the team around you and, and the mentorship that you get are really what's so, so critically important. And I, I guess knowing, you know, knowing when to cut your losses, because sometimes you aren't, getting what you need and you really do need to move on and knowing when to really bog in and work hard for that senior person because you can you're also getting the benefit yeah no I think that's good advice very pragmatic I do like that you're pragmatic I've told you that (laughs) (laughs) I guess you know the other the other really concrete part about grants is our our team always started really early we were you know I know people have different work styles and I guess there are some people who can maybe write a grant two weeks before it's due but for, for ours and, and for the type of really highly partnered intervention work that we do, we would often start over a year in advance, particularly for something like a, a partnership grant that, that takes so much engagement and getting partners on board, let alone working out the methodology that you know that's, mm-hmm. yeah, sits underneath what you're proposing. I think even not for partnership grants, I think we push that way now that we need, rightly so, that we should be having more engagement. Yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're talking about MRFF, then definitely delivering a, a concrete kind of health in outcome or, or impact for um, for the health system, for your health partners, yeah. And so I know your head's not completely in research <laughs> because you've got a lot on your plate, but do you have sort of maybe a favourite project or something you've worked on in the last five years that you want to highlight and talk about? Yeah, I do really have what 
feels like kind of a career culmination project and in terms of one that I really drove with a great team around me, but, but from inception through national implementation. And, and that's our um, Healthy Living After Cancer study. So this was a, a study funded by an NHMRC partnership, and it's built around the, the work that myself and, and my team of collaborators have done in cancer survivorships or for many years. So to just, I guess, give a little bit of, of context to that area, you know, as, as most people know, we're very good now at diagnosing and, and treating the majority of highly prevalent cancers such that people go on to be successfully treated and live for, you know, decades often afterwards. But with that come a series of, of additional risks, risks of developing other chronic diseases, in fact, maybe increased risk of developing those other chronic diseases because of some of the same behavioral risk factors that are also precursors for, for cancer. So all of that is to say paying a lot of attention to living a healthy life for someone who's been diagnosed and successfully treated with cancer takes on a lot more importance. So this, this program was really about how do we provide support for people as they're finishing up their treatment for cancer to eat healthy, to be physically active, to lose weight if they need to lose weight, things that are challenging for all of us and can be sometimes more challenging after various treatments for cancer that can make some or all of those things more difficult. So that, that's kind of background. So this Healthy Living After Cancer program was an intervention delivered over the telephone. So that's the scaling up, I guess, piece of it to, to support people to be, be active, to eat healthy, and, and to engage in modest, modest weight loss following treatment for cancer. And the cancer councils across Australia were our partners in delivery. So everyone probably knows that the cancer councils have this, used to be called the helpline, but 13, 11, 20 cancer information service that you can call for information and support around cancer. So we used this existing infrastructure that they had to, um, to actually deliver the program. So partnered with the cancer councils, trained their staff in the delivery of the program, and then supported them to deliver and worked with them to evaluate the program as it rolled out across the, the country. That's really smart, using existing infrastructure. So that was very long-winded, but that's... No, no. <laughs> that's great. So you talked before about mentoring, and I was just wondering if you wanted to touch on that more in terms of how it's impacted you having mentors and also now how you mentor people. Like you're very supportive of younger or earlier career researchers coming through. <laughs> well, and you, you know that well, Amelie, because you've kindly taken on the, the role of our um, SPH, our School of Public Health Mentoring Program coordinator here. So it, it's been a pleasure to work with you in that regard. but. Gosh, it's, I mean, for me, just to see this repeated across every academic I've ever come in contact with, you can pick the people who have and haven't received good mentoring. And it's just, we all know this in, in academia, but it's a brutal profession now it is. It's so incredibly competitive to, to get research funding, but there's so many competing demands on an academic's time, particularly if, if you're a teaching and, and research academic, so you don't you know have the luxury of just focusing full-time on your research, you're balancing teaching, you're balancing research, you're balancing service loads, as you, know, as you well know, and mentoring as, as part of navigating all that is just absolutely crucial. And how do you identify a good mentor? <laughs> I, again, I think it, you know, I suppose it's, it's hit and miss. 
I'm a big believer in trusting your gut at the end of the day. If you're you know, having a collaboration and interaction with someone and you come away from it with some tangible benefits and feeling good about it, that's, you know, it's a pretty good, good indication that it's working well. If you come away thinking, you know, am I, am I actually being, you know, in the worst of all possible worlds kind of exploited here? Am I doing work for someone that I'm not getting credit for? Does this person, is this person not really acting to promote and, and support me and my interests? That's, often time to, to cut losses and you know sometimes that's political and sometimes they're job imperatives that that make that difficult so it's I know it's not easy but it's a good mentor is is someone who really focuses on you and your best interests help you to helps you to develop your career gives you increased opportunities to publish, gives you increased opportunities to come on board a grant, perhaps as an AI first, and then as a CI as your track record develops, is that person who puts your name forward to give a talk at a conference, puts your name forward to you know, sit on a committee that he or she perhaps can't. So it's, it's someone who's really, really got your back and working hard for you. Yeah, they're hard to find. I will say the best thing about being the mentoring program coordinator is I've had to meet with a lot of senior staff in the development of that and everyone has been so supportive and they've, I feel like there will be little mini mentoring sessions for me, like everyone's oh, thinking good. of advice as they go <laughs> good, along, good. so it's been really great. Good. Um, I mean, I guess having said that, it it is a two-way street though, right? So it's not that you're going in with a take, 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 yeah. but you know, you've got to think about, well, what, what's the value that I bring to a senior academic that would make them want to invest that much in me? Well, you're, you know, optimally you're helping them publish a lot more yeah. papers than they could on their own. You're helping them write a grant that comes together in, in more quickly or, you know, in, in a maybe higher quality way for certain portions of it than, than it would have without your expertise. So it, it is it's a two-way street, and in all of my mentoring relationships, you know, particularly those early on, I worked really, really hard for my, you know, like senior scientists. But it was, you know, those were our joint publications; those were our joint grants. So it was completely advantageous. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think it's harder sometimes as early career researchers to think about what our strengths are because everyone here is so high achieving. But it's, I think. It's to think about what the stand down, what you can bring to the table. I, I suppose, know that it's necessarily the easiest thing, but you know, we all need to be getting papers out and we all struggle to, you know, get that data set analyzed or sometimes even collected and mm. <laughs> analyzed and, and just to start to draft a paper. I mean, just that, to, to be able to find someone you can identify a paper you want to jointly work on and you, you know, if you've got the analytic skills, maybe you do the first pass or, or maybe you do all the analysis for that. If you're really good at taking data that's been analyzed and starting to put it in, into the format for presenting it, tables or other forms of visualization, anything you can do that can move a paper forward. I will say, I've said this before on the podcast, but in case people didn't hear that, writing papers was really hard at the beginning, but it really can be a learned skill because I really enjoy it now. So I think even if you don't feel that's a strength, I think things you can work on them and you can improve. Well, and you know, in terms of, of I guess, that skill of writing papers, we all are skilled in different parts of it. You, if so, if you're you know you're a real methodologist or you're the data analyst, that's your your skill. Then do the analysis of data and and work up the tables. If you're really good, I'm more of the conceptual person. I would go review the literature and, and write the whole rationale for the paper, and you really help to pull the discussion together. And so it just like I guess work to your strengths. Yeah. And so I just want to come back around to the beginning again now in terms of. How do you get your head across everything? I know you haven't done a lot of teaching, you're more research focused. Now, how do you 
get your head across everything? It's <laughs> a big question. It is a big question. Um, look, I'm still very much on a steep learning curve when it comes to the teaching side of things because I have been so research-focused in my career, including in my previous role as associate dean research. So um, I've you know come in and taken that on as a real commitment, knowing that I need to put time and, and effort in. As with all things, we're fortunate to have an amazing number of really skilled colleagues here within the school and across the entire university. So I do, I learn lots and lots from, you know, the director of our teaching and learning, from our program directors here within the school, from just other other academic colleagues. I attend as many of our teaching and learning committee meetings as I can and learning, learning all the time. I, I sit on, a, I guess, a lot of central committees where these same teaching and learning issues are discussed. So I'm I'm an active sponge and I guess, you know, reasonably smart person and, and kind of working out where to where to go and but often it's whom to ask. I hope I stay like that. I want to be a sponge forever. <laughs> so just to finish up, you don't have to answer this, you don't want to. I'm just curious, because it is quite different to a research focused role, what interested you? What drew you to this kind of role? Yeah, no, it, it's a good question and it's the shift in, in roles from a research focused role or really from a, you know, from an academic kind of role and into more of an executive leadership role. That, that was a decision I made before applying for the associate dean research position, so kind of before stepping into, into this one. Again, a little bit by, by chance. To some extent, I've always found myself in, in leadership positions in leading a study, you know, in, in early days is, is leadership and often directing other, other staff, um, being director of a research center, et cetera. I was deputy head of school here, so I had a number of leadership positions while I was also maintaining my research fellowship, but did get to a point where I was seeing that I was going to need to make a decision to get that fellowship refunded. Either I was going to have to step out of some of those leadership roles and really focus in on research and, and fellowship competitiveness or make that decision to go on a different track. It was at that time, I guess by chance, that I had the opportunity to take part in some wonderful UQ women's leadership programs. And so I- good things about that. Yeah, they're good programs. And I, it was, I guess, kind of life changing for me. It helped me to look at my leadership skills and, and get more confident in them, to, to set a journey for further developing them and then I applied for the ADR role and got it, but also had to have a very, um, fairly confronting conversation, I guess, at the point of taking on that role with the person who was the faculty executive dean at the time who said, you've got to make a decision right now. If you take this role, you'll never get back on the fellowship track. Why in the world would you, you know, she really, she kind of really pushed me on that, but it was, it was having to make that, having to make that decision. And I didn't prep you for this last question. <laughs> I did in the email, but I should have highlighted it. I usually finish by just asking people if they have a favorite book or a favorite movie. <laughs> this is kind of postmenopausal memory that, that I suffer with, which is you know, very, very much a real thing. So I'm terrible at, at remembering kind of books and, and movies specifically, but, but I, love, I love to read. I, I love fiction, and I really love to read fiction that's grounded in, in place and story and history of where I am. So when I moved here to Australia, I just kept, I guess, you know, shifted my focus to reading as many Australian authors as I could. More recently, being on this journey of reconciliation, I've, I've read more Indigenous, Australian Indigenous authors, and, and I've always enjoyed 
female authors, probably, probably a bit more too, just more of that person and relationship and also relationship to place. So lots and lots, I guess, of Australian and indigenous fiction and probably most recently. So I will give you one book. My memory's not that terrible, but Tara June Winch, who was the, um, she's the Miles Franklin Book Award winner for last year, the, her book, The Yield as well as a previous one, Swallow the Air. I might have the order of those wrong, but anyway, she's just a beautiful writer of fiction that, that's about indigenous history and, and place and, and relationship. I haven't read that one, so sometimes I have read them, but this one I haven't still added to my <laughs> list. Well, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I know you're really busy. Yeah, no, it's, it's my pleasure. It's been enjoyable. Excellent. <laughs> and thank you, everyone, for listening.